If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I was 15 years old when my mom decided to cut my hair for the very first time. I told her, I need a haircut. I don't want to go to a barber, just cut my hair. Just take the clippers and just cut it. You know, it can't be that hard, right? And so I said, uh, get the dog clippers. That's what we had. We had little dog clippers. And I said, get the dog clippers and we'll just make this happen. And she said, you have way too much faith in me and, and hope that this will go well. And I said, it's just hair. Even if you just buzz it all off, it'll grow back. I'm fine. Just, can you just cut my hair? So she plugs in the clippers. I hear the little buzz behind me as she stands. She goes, not sure, Patrick. I'm not sure about this. I said, just, just do it. And so you hear the bzzz, and then right behind my left ear, I hear zzzz, and the clipper turns off, and she goes, we're going to the barber now. And I said, what happened? What happened? She goes, we're not talking about it. We're going to the barber now. And so we go to the barber, and she's just in hysterics going, I messed up my son's hair, and I can't even see anything. What did you do? What's in my bald in the back? What's going on? And we get to the barber, and the barber says, oh, that's nothing to worry about. We can fix that. And lo and behold, they did. And I didn't look like a weirdo, and they made it blend in perfectly the way that the magician barbers do. And I was totally fine. And my mom goes, whew, I'm so glad somebody knows what they're doing when it comes to hair. I'm so glad somebody knows. And as I was thinking about Daniel 7, Daniel 7, in effect, is us being able to say a cosmic, whew, I'm so glad somebody knows what's going on here and how to fix it. I'm so glad somebody knows the course of human history, where it's all going to go, and how to ensure that it ends well. Daniel 7, as we enter into this new section in the book, it's been called by one commentator, the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Another commentator says, Daniel 7 is the heart of the book of Daniel. And it would be no exaggeration to say that this chapter is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. Another commentator says, modern commentators are generally agreed that chapter 7 is the single most important chapter of the entire book of Daniel. And I wonder if this is the chapter that you are most familiar with when it comes to Daniel. I, I would imagine not. Typically, we know chapter 3, the uh, big statue, the, the um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We know Daniel chapter 6 with Daniel in the lion's den. But Daniel chapter 7 is foreign to many of us. And I believe it's foreign to us because we have now entered into a, a prophetic section of Scripture and an apocalyptic section of Scripture. You remember chapter 1 through 6 is all narrative and chapter 7 through 12 is all prophecy. We're making that switch. And I think a lot of people are scared to enter prophetic territory, especially this apocalyptic prophetic territory. What are we to make of it? How are we to understand apocalyptic literature? I think a helpful definition of what apocalyptic literature is would be one commentator's definition. Quote, it's a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people that are despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. 
So apocalyptic literature is meant to be encouraging. And this is a massive test for our understanding of apocalyptic literature. Here's a question. When you read apocalyptic literature like Daniel, the end of Daniel, and like the book of Revelation, do you walk away encouraged and exhilarated with hope? Or do you walk away struggling, maybe more despairing and depressing about the circumstances that are coming? If you're not encouraged and filled with hope when studying apocalyptic literature, something's off because the goal of these verses is to encourage us. Prophecy about future events serves to comfort, to encourage, especially in the midst of persecution. Another way we could say it is biblical prophecy is not given to make a calendar, but to mold our character. Knowing this prophetic understanding of the text doesn't make us smarter, it makes us savor the sovereignty of God. That's the goal of prophetic literature. Sinclair Ferguson says, this section is not meant to be an amusement for armchair theological sleuths or detectives. It's intended to give us an overwhelming impression of the mysteries of God's purpose and the awful conflict that lies behind and beneath human history. Here is true apocalyptic. Our depravity is unveiled and the curtain that hides the glory of God is momentarily drawn back. We are given a a brief look into the throne room of the universe and the sovereignty of God. In Daniel 7 specifically, verses 1 through 8 describes Daniel's vision of the four beasts or empires. But the centerpiece of Daniel 7 verses 9 through 14 records his vision of the throne of God and one like the son of man. And the reason for that is because God rules the kingdoms of this world. He judges the kings and the kingdoms of this world. And he is bringing everything to its own perfect planned conclusion. Daniel 7 through 12 is really the Old Testament version of Revelation. The time frame given to us in Daniel 7 is so extensive. It goes from the 6th century BC all the way into the future with the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. So technically, we are in Daniel chapter 7. We are waiting for the second coming of Christ to make all things new. And yet Daniel 7 happens so fast. So much human history is there, but he packs a lot of it into a very, very short chapter. Daniel 7 gives us a picture of history. And I've talked with many people before who say, I just don't like history. I don't like it. And I say, okay, you're living in it. So I would, I would try to get to the place where you do like it because you are living history. You're living in it. And specifically in Daniel chapter 7, you need to understand these verses so that you will know how to live as a Christian and how to endure and how God will keep you. Alistair Begg says, the second half of the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter seven, is not included in the Bible just so that we can argue about exact timings and enjoy trying to work out what each image corresponds to in human history, but never actually derive anything helpful for real life from it. No, the point of these chapters is to make clear that contrary to appearances, God is on the throne and the future is securely in his hands. Chapter one through six provide historic evidence that God's people will endure. Chapter seven through 12 provide prophetic promises that God's people will endure. The historical narratives of chapter one through six were written in the third person, but the prophecies of Daniel seven through 12 are written in the first person with the exception of two verses, chapter seven, verse one and chapter 10, 
verse 1, but Daniel is describing himself as if he were on the outside looking in in the first six chapters. But here in these chapters, 7 through 12, he is in the middle of it. It's very personal for him. And the narrative portions in chapter 1 through 6 are a platform for the prophetic chapters. Because of everything that we've seen and heard about Daniel in 1 through 6, we can trust what he's going to say in 7 through 12. So with that as an introduction to chapter 7 through 12, I want to read verses 1 through 8. And really the whole chapter needs to go together. It deserves to be read together. It deserves to be preached together because the whole point of chapter 7 is the entirety of it. But I want for our time this morning to just hone in on verses 1 through 8 because I think that there are three very vital truths that we need to understand from these opening verses. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and said the following summary of the matter. Daniel answered and said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a heart of man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one in the likeness of a bear. It was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise and devour much meat. After this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a, a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong. And it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all of the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great boasts. Father, we, we come to a section of scripture that may seem foreign and may seem alien and honestly may seem like, why is there any sort of application from this? How could there be? What's the sense of the goal of these verses for our lives? And yet, Father, I think that there are such rich truths that you would have us walk away pondering, meditating on, and ultimately being changed by from these verses. I pray that we would do exactly what Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg encouraged us to do, to dive to the heart of the point of these verses, how these verses change the way that we live today and, and not try to fight for historical timelines or things like that. That we would be gracious to hold those loosely and understand the reality of what these verses are saying. So Father, be gracious to us. We ask that you would open our eyes by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a work in us. As we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. We cannot do that apart from, from you, Holy Spirit, opening our eyes. So please make that 
happen, not because of anything we have to offer, but because of your grace, your kindness, your mercy, and your desire to point us to Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. What I want to do this morning is just walk through verses 1 through 8 and give a general understanding of these verses, which actually you already know because we went through chapter 2. And so I want to just do that very briefly and quickly. And then I want to ask, so what? And I believe that when we get to the end, there will be three very powerful truths that will come from this text that we will be able to take and implement in our own lives today. So verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel sees this dream or this vision. So for the very first time in this book, the chronological sequence is broken because you know Belshazzar's already dead. In chapter seven, Belshazzar already died a couple chapters earlier, and now we're going backwards. We're we're doing a little uh, movement backwards and breaking the chronological sequence of the book. So this actually occurs in 553 BC. So we're going back 15 years before chapter six happened. We're going backwards. Daniel is in his mid-60s, not his late 80s. Belshazzar is in his mid-30s, and Daniel sees this dream. He sees a dream and he writes down, my Bible says, the summary of the matter. Literally, he wrote the head of the words or the chief of the words. So there's more that could be said about this vision. He just summarizes all of it. I think that's really helpful to know because we're not given all the details of this vision. First of all, the vision itself isn't giving all the details of human history. Secondly, Daniel doesn't even give us all the details of the vision itself. Might be why... When we read it, we read it very formulaically, very clinically, just this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But if you put yourself in Daniel's shoes and with some sense of a sanctified imagination, think about why this would have been so terrifying. Maybe he's leaving out details that would have been terrifying. Just picture yourself in the middle of this dream and he's gonna literally call it a nightmare. Think about why this would be so terrifying, having a, a nightmare about these beasts and what's happening. Maybe he's, he's uh, close to a great sea. Maybe he's in a boat. Maybe it's dark and stormy and he's afraid he's going to drown in this vision. And then he hears a terrifying sound and maybe he starts seeing wings pop up out of the sea and coming towards him, kind of like a shark's fin would come towards you. And he's terrified. Why are there wings in the ocean? And then all of a sudden, out of the ocean comes this massive line. Looks like it's going to pounce on him. Looks like it's going to eat him. There's all these details that could be given to us, but aren't. Because Daniel says, I want to give you the summary. And so he summarizes it. Verse two, I was looking in my vision by night And behold, the four winds of heaven, four winds of heaven, that's a reference to all of the points of the compass. So from north, south, east, and west, all around the world, it's converging here. There are winds from heaven, meaning that this is from God's ordaining hand. This isn't apart from his knowledge. This isn't escaping his notice. And from the four winds of heaven, stirring up the great sea, great sea. Some have conjectured that that means the Mediterranean Sea or something like that. Maybe at first glance, it looks that way. But if you drop down to verse 17, verse 17 tells us that that these beasts will arise from the earth. So they're going to actually come out of the earth. So when it says that he sees them coming from the sea, I believe that the sea is not a reference to a literal sea, like the literal Mediterranean Sea. I think it's a reference to chaos, to people, to nations. You see this all over the place. I have so many different verses. And we covered a lot of this when we studied the book of Revelation, when it talks about the Antichrist coming from the sea, that sea can mean nations or peoples of the world. 
see can also in the Old Testament picture uh, satanic activity in Job 26, 12, Psalm 74. Paul himself equates the sea with the abyss. Uh, sometimes uh, when we get to the end of Revelation, that's why people say uh, when it says there's no more sea, John sees no more sea. Maybe it's not literally there's no water. Maybe it's literally there's no chaos. There's nothing that's uh, without order in the new heavens and the new earth. One commentator says about the sea that it's uh, a representation of the agitated world of nations, the peoples of the earth being portrayed as a great sea of humanity in a constant state of turmoil, chaos, and unrest. And so in the midst of all of this, four great beasts, verse 3, were coming up from the sea. They're all different from one another. The first beast is like a lion. It's like a lion, maybe getting ready to pounce, maybe pouncing right over Daniel, maybe pouncing at Daniel. I don't know why he's terrified, but he's terrified as, he lo- as he's looking at this. These beasts will all represent kings and their empires. And we see this all over the pages of the Old Testament where beasts are representative of nations, of empires, and of kings. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 26 through 29 has a representation of Babylon being represented as a lion. We've seen that as we studied uh, the book of Daniel already. Even in olden days, we understand this, uh, maybe a little bit uh, less olden than the Old Testament, but you have this uh, today where Scotland uses the rampant lion as its uh, just kind of symbol as an animal. Uh, Russia uses the bear. Uh, We as Americans use the bald eagle, right? And we're happy that it's the bald eagle and not what Benjamin Franklin wanted. You remember what he wanted it to be, right? He wanted a turkey, so uh, nobody would really think highly of us if the turkey was our, our bird of choice. Uh, so we know that this is representative of kings and kingdoms, of empires, of nations. And so this is a terrifying lion that's representing Babylon. But if you're terrified of a lion, my question is, what's worse than a terrifying lion? And I think it's a terrifying lion that has eagle's wings. That's when you know we've got a problem. <laughs> This lion can fly around and eat me, not just pounce on me, but fly around. We see this picture of Babylon as a lion in Jeremiah 4, in Lamentations 4. We know, as we've already studied, that lions adorned the Ishtar gate. There were hundreds of lions, pictures of lions that were on that Ishtar gate. As Daniel would have walked into Babylon property, he would have seen all these lions. That's, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. They loved lions. And so here we have this picture of Babylon being a lion with wings of an eagle. And Daniel keeps looking and he sees that the wings are plucked off and it's lifted up from the ground and it has to stand on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. And this is probably a reference to Nebuchadnezzar going insane. His empire is flourishing. He's flying throughout the known world, conquering nations, conquering people groups. And then God says, because of your pride, I'm going to cut this down, stop you short and pull the wings off of your empire and you're going to look like a man. You're going to lose all of your sanity. Could be that. Could also just be the limitations that God gave to Babylon. That God said, you're going to go here and no more. And so Babylon is pictured for us here as a lion with the wings of an eagle. The second beast is in verse five. The second one that's in the likeness of a bear. Another beast shows up and this one looks like a bear and it's raised up on one side. And remember, we've seen all of these different 
empires that have been given to us in Daniel chapter 2 with that statue, head of gold, chest of silver, and you go all the way down, you see those four different empires. We're seeing them again in successive order here. Babylon's the lion, Medo-Persia's the bear. Medo-Persia's the bear. It's very interesting, even the details here. We're not totally sure, but I think it's good speculation. This bear's raised up on one side. Why one side? Well, because the Medes and the Persians were working together, but Persia was way stronger than uh, the Median Empire. So you got the Medes and the Persians, but it's kind of raised up on one side because Persia's really owning the Medes. And there are three ribs in its mouth. Now that could totally just mean this bear is hungry. And I think that that's possible. It could also mean, interestingly enough, it could mean the three kingdoms or empires that Cyrus, the Persian, had conquered and overtaken to expand his empire. Namely, Babylon in 539 BC, Lydia in 536 BC, and Egypt in 525 BC. So it could be a reference to those three kingdoms, those three empires and their kings that Persia just waltzed all over and conquered. And then at the end of that verse, this bear is told, arise and keep on eating, devour more. Keep on destroying. Keep on grabbing more territory. Go subdue more nations. And that's exactly what happened with the Medo-Persian Empire. Eventually, the Persian Empire reached from Egypt and the Aegean Sea in the west to the Indus River Valley in the east. It had a territory that was far larger than any other that had ever come before it. So we have the lion that's Babylon, the bear that's Medo-Persia, Verse six, after this, I kept looking and behold, another one. So these are successive after this. So they're not all arriving at the same time. It's one after another, after another, after another. They're happening consecutively. And this time it's a leopard. Leopards are fascinating animals. They can run 36 miles an hour. Thank you, wildcrats. They can jump 20 feet forward from a standing spot. They can leap 10 feet vertically but this leopard is even more terrifying because it's even faster because it has four wings. Babylon had two wings, a lion with two wings. This is a leopard that's already faster than a lion, but now it's even more fast because it has four wings. And what's this kingdom representative of? What's this, this leopard representative of? It's representative of Greece. Daniel's writing in the 500s BC. The Greek empire is gonna show up in the low 300s BC. So 200 years before Alexander the Great is going to conquer the known world, Daniel's writing this as a prophecy that captures the reality of exactly what Alexander the Great would do. Alexander the Great was known for carrying out his conquest with lightning speed. That's what he's known for. He invaded Asia Minor in the year 334 BC, and then within 10 years, he had conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire and all the way to India. Legend has it that when he finished conquering the Persian Empire, he sat down and wept because there were no more nations to conquer. He was lightning fast with the, the speed with which he would conquer the world. He's the leopard with four wings. But then he died, age 33, 323 BC. And when he died, we know historically that his empire was divided into four different regions and four different people were given dominion over those four different regions of the Greek Empire. Antipater was given the region of Macedonia. Lysimachus was given the region of Asia Minor. Seleucius I was given the region of Syria. And Ptolemy I was given the region of Egypt and Arabia. And I believe that's why Daniel sees not only this leopard that has the four wings, but then the beast also had four different heads. Those four different heads 
the dominion is given to them. Once Alexander the Great dies, those four different heads split up the Greek empire into four different parts. Now, there's so much more to say about this, and we'll get to it in Daniel chapter 8, because Daniel chapter 8 is going to give us another vision of Persia and Greece and the way that they fight and what happens afterwards. And it is so specific that it's one of the chapters that makes liberal scholars about the Bible, people that say, this isn't a true book. This wasn't written by God. Anyone who says, I don't believe that this was written by God, they look at Daniel 7 and 8 and they say, what are we supposed to do with this? And they have to say, it can't be prophecy about future events because it's so specific. And so they say it was written after the events happened as if it were a prophecy uh, and it's just basically a lie. It's so specific and it's so perfect in its detail. And we'll get to it in the coming days in Daniel chapter 8. But just... Just for our time this morning, Alexander the Great, when he went into Jerusalem, when he went into Israel to conquer Israel, he saw a procession coming from the temple in Jerusalem, and he wondered, what is this procession? What's going on? And so he went down, and before killing everybody, he said, what are you doing? He saw high priests, he saw all this you know, formal, regal wear, and he decides, what's going on? Can you tell me? And Josephus tells us that when... Alexander asked that question. The high priest came out of the temple with the scroll of Daniel, turned to Daniel 8 and said, this is about you. You're doing this right now. And Alexander said, quote, I like your book. I like your book. And so he said, I'm not going to kill you all. I'm not going to destroy you. And because I like your book and who you are and what your God stands for, saying that I'm going to take over the world, he remits taxes for five years. He says, don't pay me anything. Just be a happy Greek citizen. But you see all of this, the way that he conquered was given to him. End of verse six, dominion was given to him. It looks like Alexander the Great just went crazy in his uh, dominating the known world. But the Bible tells us who was behind this. God says, I'll give this kingdom to you. And then when you're 33, I will take it out of your hands. And that's exactly what happened. Then verse seven, I kept looking in the night vision. So night visions, that's just a nice phrase for nightmares. These terrifying nightmares. And behold, a fourth beast, fearsome, terrifying, extraordinarily strong, has large iron teeth and it devours and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all of the beasts that were before it and had 10 horns. Notice the three beasts that came before all were likened to an animal. They said, uh, this kingdom is like a lion. This, this beast is like a leopard. This beast is like a bear. But this fourth beast, there's nothing that it looks like. There's no, it looks like this. It's just, you can't compare it to any animal. It doesn't look like a normal animal. There's no like in verse seven. It's not being likened to anything because there's nothing it could be likened to. Even at the end of verse seven, he says, it was different from all of the beasts that were before it. Daniel is bending over backwards to tell us there is nothing like this beast. This beast is completely different than everything we've seen. It can't be categorized. And it goes in and devours, it shatters, it crushes everything in its path. Now it has iron teeth. And if we're gonna follow the progression of chapter two, we move from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and then those iron legs going into the feet were Rome and representative of Rome. So this is Rome. And yet you remember that it's not just Rome in Daniel chapter two, it's Rome. And then also this Rome 2.0, because there's Rome that happens in Daniel chapter two. 
in these four successive kingdoms. But then the last kingdom that's mentioned in Daniel chapter two is the kingdom that Jesus shows up, destroys, and then brings about his physical earthly kingdom here. And since his physical earthly kingdom has not happened yet, and we're waiting for it, then we have not met this final beast, this final Rome 2.0, in which Jesus is going to bring about his physical kingdom. We're still waiting for it. So here we have this terrifying beast that, yes, it represents Rome, but it stands for so much more than just Rome in the past. It stands for this Rome 2.0, this revived Roman-esque empire. It has 10 horns. The horns are representative of rulers and powers. That's Psalm 75 describes the horn of strength and of power. And we saw back in Daniel chapter 2 that there were 10 toes, obviously, on these feet. And there were 10 toes that were described in some detail. And now here we have 10 horns, probably uh, alluding to the same thing, that there are 10 kings that are arising in this Rome 2.0 that work together in taking over the world. Verse 8, while he's contemplating these horns, wondering at just how terrifying this beast is, another horn shows up, a little one. We're going to talk a lot about this little horn in the days ahead, but just for now, it's going to show up. Three of the first horns are going to be pulled out by the roots before, and this horn possesses eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great boasts. He has eyes like a man. That means he will be intelligent, and he speaks great boasts, literally great things, and these great things are not good things. They're bad things, but they're boastful comments and blasphemy against God. The little horn combines intelligence, the eyes of the man, and arrogance, a mouth speaking great things, which is always a very poor combination, intelligence and arrogance. And so, though he's going to blaspheme God, most of the world will, as one author puts it, fall under the spell of this winsome man, the words and captivating personality of this this winsome man. So, we need to understand who this horn is. We've got four different empires, and then we have this horn that's one king, and we have to understand who is this king. This is a ruler that's connected to the Roman Empire. He's going to start out small, but he's going to grow to subdue three of the ten nations in this confederation, and then he'll lead the other seven. In other words, he's going to gain control over the entire empire. He will be extremely intelligent, greatly blasphemous, and he must be future. Because the empire that he controls is going to be the one, as we'll see next week, it's it's the one that Messiah is going to show up and destroy and say, let me bring my physical kingdom now. So he has to be future. So even though these four kingdoms are past, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, there's a future Rome 2.0 that this man is going to lead, is going to control, is going to operate. He's going to subdue three kings, and then he's going to partner with the other seven and bring this 10-kingdom confederation together as one kingdom in the known world. And who is he? He's the Antichrist. He's the powerful ruler over the world that will appear in the last days and reign during the time of the Great Tribulation, that period of seven years yet to come. These ten horns represent different kings who will fall under the authority of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to usurp the authority that they already have and take their power and then go to war against God. And this, by the way, you're familiar with the term Antichrist. This is the very first time that we're ever given a description of who this man is. But it's not the last. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We studied this passage in great detail months ago. But you can see so many similarities to Daniel 7. And 
whenever I tell people what we have preached and what we are preaching, I say we, we preach through Revelation. That was the last sermon series we preached through, and now we're preaching through Daniel. They always laugh and say, that's backwards. It should have been Daniel first and then Revelation. Uh, yes, you're correct. We missed it. We went the wrong direction. It's okay. It's actually helping us because you have to get the understanding of Daniel in chapter seven through the end to understand what's going on in Revelation. And since we already did all of that work in our Revelation sermon series, we already really know the answers to these. We already know what's happening. For instance, look at chapter 13, Revelation 13, verse one. There's this dragon, which is the representation of the devil standing on the sand of the seashore. And then John sees a beast coming up out of the sea. And this beast has 10 horns, which we've seen in Daniel seven, seven heads, we'll talk about that later, and on his horns were 10 diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. So that's the arrogant speaking. And the beast, look at what he says. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion. So notice, John is looking backward into human history as he's seen the Greek empire, the Medo-Persian empire, and Babylon. So he's seen these backwards, whereas Daniel's seen them forward. He sees lion, bear, leopard. John sees leopard, bear, lion. But this beast has all of these combined together. We said it's the worst of Babylon. It's Babylon and more. It's Medo-Persia and more. It's Greece and more. It's Rome and more. This, this last empire is the worst of all of those empires combined. And the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. So when we were in, Dan, in Revelation 13, we went back to Daniel 7 to ask the question, who are these beasts? We've seen them before. We just didn't know that we had. And so now in Daniel chapter 7, when we see these beasts, we can see, oh, we know it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, but then this Rome 2.0 that's yet to come. So the question is, when will it come? How will it come? Why will it come about? What will it actually be? Will it be Rome revised? Some commentators would say that Rome technically never really died. I don't know. I think that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I understand where they're coming from because they would say that the Roman empire was this latent empire that it split up into a West and an Eastern empire and, and they continued, but it's not fully destroyed and it exists on into the European empires that we see today, even into America as we came from England. Could be that. It also could just be a Rome-esque empire. But we know that it's going to be a terrifying empire. We know that it's going to be terrible, terrifying. Rome had and in its restored form will have the agility, cat-like vigilance and craft of the fierce cruelty of a leopard, the feet of a bear to crush their enemies, the roar of a lion to terrify everyone. And this is what the saints will face in the last days. Some people view uh, the, the seven-year great tribulation yet to come. Some people view that as a later development in church history. They say, well, if you go back to the early church fathers, they never describe a literal seven-year period. And they never describe a literal man named Antichrist. That's not correct. That's not accurate. And I just want to give you one. Jerome, AD 4, 400 AD. Jerome identifies the little horn in Daniel 7 as he was doing a study through this as the Antichrist. And he says, this man, quote, will be one of the human race in whom Satan will wholly take up his residence in bodily form. So he doesn't represent uh, some group of people that stand against God or something like that. No, he represents, he's a man. He's an actual human being. He's described all over the place. Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, making a firm covenant with the many. 
Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, the king who does whatever he pleases and exalts and magnifies himself above every God. Second Thessalonians 2, he's described as the man of lawlessness who boasts these arrogant words against God. And then Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, speaks of the blasphemies that he will utter. So the fourth kingdom that Daniel sees is the Roman Empire that will either continue in some latent form or will be revived and resurrected in some form until it's destroyed by Jesus when he establishes his physical, literal kingdom. So, what are we supposed to do with this? We have this vision. We have this terrifying dream. We know historically who these four kingdoms are. We know what we're waiting for, this kingdom that's yet to come. What's the point? What's the point of all of this? And obviously, we could say God's sovereign. That's an easy point. We also could say in the coming weeks, we will, God will judge the wicked. The saints will reign with him. God's kingdom will triumph over earthly kingdoms. God's kingdom will endure forever where earthly kingdoms fail. And we will rule and reign with him. We've said those things before. We could say them again here, and we will say them in the future. But just taking these eight verses, I want to bring about just three vital truths that I believe are massively instructive for us today. We need these truths, and I think you can see them here in these eight verses. Truth number one, God is the revealer and has a perfect plan for what he does and doesn't reveal. God is the revealer, and he has a perfect plan for what he chooses to reveal and what he chooses not to reveal. Just think about it. Nebuchadnezzar had died only about nine years before the writing of this chapter, the experience of this chapter. And in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel receives this vision. New king, new regime. And we know he was a worse king than Nebuchadnezzar. The people of God are probably understandably concerned about their future in light of the wicked rule of this man, Belshazzar. And that's when God speaks. That's when God says, I want to remind you of how this is going to go. I love the beauty of what's going on in these verses with the time frame that as the people of God are worried, are frustrated, are anxious, are wondering what's going to happen, God says, let me give you a dream. Let me give you a vision. Let me speak so that I can help you understand what's going to happen. Now, does he say everything? No. God is the revealer and he gives us some of it, but he doesn't give us all of it. I would love to know every detail. Maybe in heaven we will. This vision has a lot, but it excludes a lot. And this is a reminder to us, even in the way that Daniel writes it, I'm just going to give you the summary of it, not every detail of my dream. Reminds us that what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says is true, right? God is the one who reveals things and the mysterious things that have not been given to us belong to him and they're not for us to know. There are some aspects of the time frame of these things happening, of the groups of people that will make these things happen that we just won't know. And that's okay, because God reveals some things, but not other things. But everything he does reveal, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, those things are for us to know. Those things are for us. So God is speaking into human history at this very moment in Daniel 7 to say, hey guys, don't worry, I've got this. That's what he's saying. And so to us today, be reminded, be, be encouraged in the reality of the fact that God has spoken clearly in his word and has given you things. Maybe not everything you want to know, surely not everything I want to know, 
but we have everything pertaining to life and godliness in this book. We have everything that we need to glorify him and to have hope, assurance, and comfort in the days ahead. Number two, a second reality that just pops out of these verses. And this is an important one, especially for our church, I think. Number two, human history is filled with devastating evil. Human history is filled with devastating evil. You remember back in Daniel chapter two, the language of this book flipped. So it began in Hebrew chapter one, and then chapter two, verse four, it switches halfway, mid, mid verse switches to Aramaic. And it goes from chapter two to chapter seven, all the way to the end of chapter seven in Aramaic. And then it's going to go back to Hebrew chapter eight through chapter 12. So if you just take the Aramaic section out of Daniel, you have chapter two through chapter seven. And they bookend perfectly, right? Chapter two is the vision of the statue, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome 2.0. And then chapter seven is the retelling of that. These four different beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome 2.0. So my question is, why do we have it again? We already got it. We already know it. Why are we bookending this Aramaic section with another retelling of the same account that we already know? Here's why. Chapter two is man's perspective of kings, kingdoms, and earthly empires. Chapter seven is God's perspective of kings, kingdoms, and earthly empires. Notice the difference. How does man view kingdoms and empires? Stunning gold, beautiful arraignment of gold and silver and bronze. They're impressed by their kingdoms. They see them as glorious. They're seduced by their power. Man looks at the kingdoms of this world and sees them as shining, shimmering with beauty. How does God see them? Almost always, kingdoms of this world are corrupt, beast-like. From God's perspective in chapter 7, the governments and kingdoms are not noble. They don't have glory. They're animalistic. They're devouring and ripping apart those who are subject to them. So from our perspective, we look and go, yeah, look at our kingdoms, how beautiful and glorious. From God's perspective, he sees just the gore and devastation of who we are as a people. Think of the differences between humans and beasts. Beasts are just purely impulsive. They're driven by instinct. A mountain lion can just decide, I'm hungry and I'm going to eat you. That does not cross our mind ever, right? We as human beings don't think that's acceptable and we can just do that. I'm hungry, I'm going to eat Jeremiah. There we go. We, we're, we got our snack for the day. That doesn't work. We don't live by impulse, and yet this text is telling us we actually do. We're way more beast-like than we think we are. When we live according to our own desires, our own sinful impulses, we are beast-like and animalistic in our behavior. And Daniel wants these beasts to terrify us the way that they terrified him. We should pause when we see Daniel being terrified by anything. And he wants the same terror that he experienced in these visions to register as terrifying to us. We are meant to be overwhelmed by how gross these beasts are. And in doing so, I think Daniel wants to teach us a lesson of the progression of human history. On the whole, 
Nations and kingdoms are always out for conflict, conquest, and control. Empires are bent towards dominating and devouring, and they don't really care about how many people they mangle along the way. Now, we've seen this in human history in general, but sometimes, as one commentator says, we must descend to particulars to feel the weight of this because generalizations just have no edge to them. So, one commentator says, quote, between 1895 and 1896, the Turkish government had already killed over 100,000 Armenians. Then in 1915, the Turks accused them of assisting Russian invaders, and so they declared April 24th as the Armenian Liquidation Day. As many as 600,000 died that day. Many under great cruelty like having their heads placed in vices and squeezed until they collapsed. When Koreans protested Japanese tyranny in 1919, men and boys had their fingers passed over red hot wires. Toenails were ripped from flesh with pincers. Some were flogged repeatedly until they were taken to the hospital and big slabs of gangrenous skin had to be cut off. Then there was the Black Friday during World War II, when Japanese troops went through Alexandra Hospital in Singapore, bayoneting all patients, doctors and nurses, and then tied hundreds of Chinese hand to hand and massacred them on the beaches. Sometimes the brutality can be laid at the feet of a single dictator. In 1932, Joseph Stalin demanded grain deliveries from the Ukrainian peasantry, quotas that were larger than the total crop combined. And the demand was ruthlessly enforced and at least 5 million, but more likely 7 million people simply starved to death. And in the 1970s, Idi Amin carried out his own style of carnage in Uganda, sledgehammering prisoners so the execution cells were littered with human eyes and teeth, bodies floating down rivers, civilians who happened to belong to the wrong tribe would scream in agony as their most intimate body parts were ripped away. These examples, as horrific as they are, are not exceptional unto themselves. History is filled with these kinds of stories and countless more. And as we hear these stories, we should weep and we should cry out, how long, O Lord, until you return. Daniel's vision is reminding us, this is how human history works. It's beastly, it's terrifying, it's scary. And the reason why I say I think this is important for us to know is because, for better or for worse, you have an eternal optimist as a pastor. And so I'm constantly telling you, yes, it's bad, but God rules, God reigns, and it's going to be fine in the end. And it is, and I think Daniel 7 is going to tell us that. But I think it's helpful to pause at moments and remember, to look square in the face of evil and say exactly what God says about it. It's evil, it's terrifying, it's wrong. To own that, to feel that, to sense that. We live in a world, just look at the news, people are murdered every week. Senseless wars are taking place. So much evil is running rampant and wild. And we Christians are crazy enough to believe as we watch this happening, 
that Jesus is king over the world and that this is my father's world. How can we believe this? How can we maintain faithfulness and maintain hope? It's the point of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 could be summarized as, how long, O Lord, until this is all over? And God is saying, not forever. But in the meantime, it will be tough. In the meantime, it will be tough. And that leads to the third reality. So number one, God's the revealer. He will give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. No more, no less. Perfect to give us hope and assurance. Number two, in the middle of living this life, we need to realize and recognize and remember that life is filled with so much depraved evil. And that leads to number three. Learn to live in the already not yet. We need to learn to live now in the already not yet. There is a day coming when God will finally say enough and we long for that day. We cry out for that day. There is a time coming when one day it will all be over and these beastly kingdoms will be destroyed and God will exalt his people, but not yet. So how do we live in this already not yet? We're staring at the suffering of the world and the evil that we see, but we also know with assurance that Jesus is going to rule and reign in the end. How do we do this? What do you expect out of life? Can I just ask you, what are you expecting out of life? Daniel says it's going to be very, very hard. Daniel himself is afraid. He knows the end, but knowing the end doesn't diminish the anguish leading up to it. We know who wins, yes, but the suffering that will come upon the world will be terrifying and intense. So live with this tension of the already not yet. Here's how Alistair Begg says it. We are not surprised we're not to be surprised when we find Christianity maligned and marginalized, when we hear of Christians being prosecuted and persecuted, or when we find ourselves being told that we're extremists, haters, and bigots. For a few hundred years in the West, we've been able to kid ourselves that the normal experience of God's people is to be considered respectable and honorable, to be able to voice our views in the public square and be welcomed, and to be able to speak to those in power and be listened to. It was not ever thus, and it is no longer thus. We're back to the normal experience of the church, facing opposition and being called to stand firm and undergo suffering for our faith. So let's not be so gullible to think that some new regime or some new ideology or some new party will instigate some form of cosmic therapy in this world. Evil is reigning and ruling and it's bad and it's wrong and it's terrifying. But we also know the end. In the end, and this is insane to say. But in the end, it will all work out better than we thought it could. That makes no sense. Apart from God's sovereign grace in every single moment, bringing about his perfect plan and his perfect purpose. So we come on Sunday mornings. We're here with all of our stories, all of our experiences, all of our joys this last week, all of our sorrows. We come to receive nourishment and encouragement from the Lord and we just get a vision of some old guy's dream. We kind of go, okay, how is that supposed to help me today? And I would say, and I think Daniel would say, this whole book is to foster hope among God's people by showing you God will not tolerate evil. He calls it what it is. And he won't tolerate it forever. He won't tolerate it forever. We're living in it now and it is evil and wrong and scary but he won't tolerate it forever. 
Where is God in all of this? He won't tolerate it forever, so we know he's coming back, but what about now? Where is he now? What is he doing now? And that's what Daniel's going to see in the next verses next week. Father, we thank you so much for these incredible, powerful dreams that we've studied all in Daniel, but here now to see the reminder of the reality that you have graciously spoken and revealed your truth to us, exactly what we need, when we need to hear it, not more, not less. And you have called evil, evil. Your servant Daniel was terrified of what he was seeing. So I pray, Father, that there would be a real sense where we're terrified. It's okay to be terrified. It's okay to be frustrated about what we're seeing in a sense of, God, please come back. We're longing, we're waiting, and, and this isn't right. It's, it's right for us to say this isn't right. God, may we never turn a blind eye to the suffering of this world and say, well, one day it'll all be better. That's not what Daniel's doing, and that's not what we should do. But Father, help us to, to not just stay there, to not just wallow in some self-pity of this world is awful. Help us not to be angry at the evil that we do see in a sense of hating the people around us, but rather pleading with them to repent and to turn to, to Christ. May we live out what Paul says, to be angry at the sin, but not sin ourselves. Father, all of this is impossible for us to do. When, when we ask of how to live in the already not yet. We know you're coming back, but it's not happening now. now. We know you're going to make all things new and all things right, but we know it's not happening now. We kind of walk away from here going, okay, I know that's how I should live, but what does that look like? Father, give us great conversations. Even as we exit church a little bit early, give us great conversations today at lunch where we can talk about what this looks like. Are we scared? Are we terrified? Are we... Um, just crippled by fear? Are we uh, just struggling with this strange sense of being gullible that if we could fix the government or if we could fix certain people in power, then, then we'd have a Christian nation. God, I pray that we would realize how to live in the already not yet. May we be the most joyful people in the world while at the same time being the most sorrowful people as we see the suffering around us. And through it all, make us wait well. Even as we sing, help us to wait on you and place our trust in you. We pray in your name. Amen.